Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Sharat as always and I'm delighted to say I have been joined by Varun Vasudevan. How are you Varun? I'm great. I am a little sad that our third partner, our usual partner in crime Alex isn't there today. He's feeling a bit under the weather. Well, uh, no, that's, that's that's false news Varun. Actually what happened is he was the, as uh, as listeners of the last episode may remember he was the one who convinced us to to take up West Ham and then they right. got smashed by Arsenal so the disciplinary <laughs> committee reviewed his, uh, his his decisions and we decided to give him a, a one podcast suspension. So that, that that's why he's not here today but he will he will serve his ban and hopefully be back um Next next week, but I mean, yeah. I was going to add after that. I'm sorry, he's sick, but then we might have a more pleasant and positive and uplifting <laughs> podcast as a result. And probably, I mean, in that sense, probably a nice one for him to sit this one out. But I think today is a lot about. There's nothing negative. There's nothing uh, to drag down to pull down in in today's episode, according to me. Oh, hopefully, uh, yeah. I mean. We, we'll we'll ask him after we're done recording. We'll, we'll see what he gets. Uh, but but no, in all seriousness, hopefully we'll, we'll get well soon. And yeah, hopefully we'll be back next week. But yep, for this one, as you say, it's just the two of us, and it's it's a very exciting uh, topic because we are talking about Chabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen, who are certainly the talk of town of the town right now because they're eight points clear at the top of the Bundesliga, having never won it before. They only have one major title in their entire history under their name, which was a DFB Pokal in the 1970s or 80s, if I remember correctly. Um, they haven't won a thing in ages. Um, and really, no one thought they would win a thing uh, in recent times. Because if you think back to just over a year ago, um, to this day, they endured a horrific start to the previous season under Gerardo Seoane. They were, I believe, just a couple uh, points above the relegation battle when Xabi Alonso took over. And in just over a year, he's got them from there to obviously qualifying for Europe that season. And now, uh, one of the title favourites. So, it's an incredible, incredible turnaround. Uh, and of course, I don't need to give a lot, lot of background about Javi Alonso. I think everyone knows uh, what a fantastic player he was. Uh, I started off at Real Sociedad, Liverpool, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. Experience all around. Um, of course, a Spanish uh, national team player with a World Cup to his name. Um, I mean that um, Jose Mourinho video on yeah uh, why he thought Javi Alonso would be a great manager because he's just gone through all the schools right and his dad also was a coach or a manager or something and then he had played in all of the major leagues played under the big managers and he was uh, and Mourinho's conclusion is he has all the dynamics to become a great man that was way before Javi got his first job he wasn't even hired by Sociedad B at that point. So, yeah, I mean, his career just screams um, the 360-degree, you know, education. Obviously, you one has to be open and receptive and interested to go into coaching. But, yeah, he, he kind of had a lot of the elements that made him uh, who he is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as you said, everything was in place there for him. So, it's it's not really a surprise to see him doing so well. And, you know, as you say, Mourinho pointed out how he'd, sort of learned from all all the various top managers with different styles, from himself to Guardiola, Ancelotti, so many others. And you can see elements of, of everything, really, in, in the way his Leverkusen side plays. And we will, of course, go on to discuss that. Um, so, well, yeah, actually, I think uh, before we dive into that, though, I think it's worth mentioning um, a, a bit about you know the, the last year, because our, our sort of focus of this episode will be this season. But I think it's uh, worth um, you know just briefly discussing what they did in the 22-23 season under Alonso, and more importantly in the summer because I think that's that's where the the foundations for this title charge were really laid. So as I mentioned, they when he took over they were in a relegation battle, and he pretty much instantly switched to I mean under Seone they played with a back four four two three one four two three four three three type. Um, Alonso, I remember from his very first game, he switched to this three-four-two-one system, and he stuck to it um, till now. Uh, it, it's obviously not so uh, rigid formation-wise, and and we'll discuss that. But yeah, the back three has been maintained pretty much throughout. Um, so he instantly found that, and really, what he's done this season is just build on the the bases that were laid last season. So 
as far as basic tactical principles go in terms of structures uh, you, what you see this season is not too dissimilar uh, f- to what you saw last season so both in and out of possession so i think obviously last season they did great to sort of bounce back from basically almost being in a relegation battle to qualifying for the europa league but there i think the existing squad uh, got to really understand what alonso wanted from them in that time and of course it helped that alonso was hired just before the winter break if i remember correctly so especially after the turn of the year uh, they they did a lot better but still their form wasn't anywhere near what we see right now which is uh, 32 matches unbeaten this season in all competitions that's equaling a german record and so if they beat mainz uh, who are in the relegation battle next weekend they will break bayern's record so that'll be quite quite something but uh, yeah as as i mentioned then in the summer is is when they really sort of um, i think that that's when people start to take notice of them doing something potentially quite exciting uh, and and it was of course their transfer business that caught everyone's eye so really the, as as far as departures go they they got a fair bit of money uh, in terms of transfer fee from Musa Diaby joining Aston Villa for something about 55 million euros and then there wasn't any real major departure they sold Mitchell Bakker to Atalanta for 10 million but then they they more than replaced him and then yeah Karim Demirbay uh, Nadim Amiri Paulinho you know some members uh, towards the older side of the squad leaving but uh, and Karim Bellarabi but no real key players apart from Diaby and Bakker was a regular starter leaving and so they they, they in terms of transfer fee again they got about 70 million euros and they spent about 80 uh, but the way they spent it was absolutely amazing 20 million on Victor Boniface more than worth it. I mean he's probably worth three four times that now and uh, we will dive into him later for sure 15 million on Grand Xhaka he's proved to be a sensational signing both on and off the pitch um with with his obviously uh, his, his footballing qualities but also his leadership qualities 10 million for Jonas Hoffmann Uh, maybe a bit underrated but a great replacement uh, for Diaby who does the job maybe not so flashy but a very important uh, signing and in my opinion the most important signing of the summer i i, I would say not just for leverkusen but in the whole of the bundesliga alejandro grimaldo on a free at the end of his contract at benfica because last season the big issue leverkusen had was that they were playing this 3-4-2-1 system with you know attacking wing backs and on the right Frimpong was doing amazing but on the left they didn't really have anyone they had Michel Bakker uh Pedro uh Piero Hincapié sorry as a couple of options but neither of them are really pure wing backs or even Deli Sindgraven but again not a pure wing back at most they're full backs maybe even wide center backs in the case of Hincapié so they they were really limited down that left side and they they don't even if you look at their squad right now they don't really have a proper left winger as they might do on the right so they they were very one dimensional in a sense and they really lacked a, 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 an all round threat which can really trouble teams and so it was it was perhaps easier to defend against them but after grimaldo's come in and again we'll get onto that later but uh, he has completely transformed the team and then also a couple of smart signings for the future uh, well there was also yoshif stanisic on on loan from bayern Uh, which i'm sure will go down well when he returns in the summer uh, and and then they spent uh, 7 million on artur uh, from brazil hasn't really played a lot but 20 years old so you might see him in the future uh, got mate kovar from manchester united for 5 million young keeper clearly a backup and nathan tella for 23 million from southampton is is really the only signing which you can say maybe hasn't proven to be worth the investment But I mean, he's definitely not been a bad signing either, because he has been a good backup uh, for Frimpong. So, I mean, as far as transfer windows go, I can't really think of a better one off the top of my head than what Leverkusen did this summer. I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, on that, Varun. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with everything you said, and I just wanted to point out one thing. If I just sort the number of 90s played by players this year on FPRF. and i just highlight the transfers new transfers who are coming the first and second are grimaldo and zaka uh who have played the most 90s and they were transfers 
then you have four players in tarwards frimpong radeki then hoffman again comes in who is a new transfer tapsawa pelicius are old ones boniface new transfer andrik hinkapi old ones tanisic who's played 1690s he has been key for them then some old players kosano and adli then two more new signings nathan tell and kovar kovar i mean although he's a backup he's played 990s so i mean if you see their their most used thir- 13 or 14 players eight of them are the new transfers so you have to like credit the the team building support that jabi alonso has got i mean obviously tactically he's brilliant and we'll get into that but he's got eight players who have had a major say in the uh, title the only two who haven't are borje iglesias and arthur arthur is young iglesias is loan deal so those are the only ones that and iglesias has also joined in january so and he joined in jan so i mean that's just recent so yeah. everyone else has just had a massive uh, impact on their season so he's got literally half his team and all for 80 million so this is really <laughs> really good transfer business i mean eight players for 80 million in which uh, and again they they're not from established clubs the reason they were able to get these people cheap is saka wanted to leave arsenal and he was nearing the end of his contract so he came cheap union southampton gladback uh, these are the kind of clubs that won't charge so much you know united's backup keeper benfica uh, grimaldo leaving on a free i mean stanisic on a loan these are smart deals they they have not gone for expensive players they have not gone for big brands they have gone for fitment people who can do their job people who fit with alonso's vision and i think that is the best kind of team building possible absolutely and uh, last thing on this because we of course talk a lot about transfer fees but i think it's it's also important to understand that a lot of the financial side of things actually goes in terms of player salaries and of course this is the tactics podcast and not the squad building podcast so we don't want to go on this too much but i think an equal amount of credit also goes to just the way they've structured the these salaries of these new players do, do you want to take a guess who among these new signings was the highest paid and how much they they give them a year zaka well, no zaka actually i was surprised uh, zaka is uh, fifth in the squad and second among the signings and they pay him just over 4 million euros a year so i i, I thought they'd pay him more but who that is surprising yeah oh Grimaldo. Yep, indeed. It's it's Grimaldo. He's the joint highest paid player in the squad along with Patrick Schick, 6 million only. So oh, the salary spread is not is not I mean it's 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 relatively really thin. And then as you go down in the list, it's just incredible stuff. So uh you know Hoffman they pay 4 million a year. Um again experienced player so that makes sense. Victor Boniface is they're just paying him 2 million euros a year. So wow. I, mean, I I hope he is he is good he's got good bonuses cuz I mean he's being robbed with that. Um and then yeah Nathan Della 1.8 million Stanisic uh, as well this all per year um and 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 that that's, that's everyone's lower than that. So yeah and, uh, it's it's uh, the top 5 is Sheikh and Grimaldo at 6 million a year, Tapsoba and Palacios at 5 and then Jaka at 4.1 and then Frimpong and Hoffman are at 4. So like whatever angle you look at it they've utilized their finances incredibly incredibly well so their whole squad yeah. they pay i think it's what 61 million uh, euros per year and and yeah that's basically just a bit more they spent on transfers and with that they built a title winning team quite possibly in in just yeah like one season so yeah i mean we, we of course get on to alonso now but we have to give a lot of credit to what's going on behind the scenes as well all right that's out of the way now let's get on to the 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 real headline of this episode which is Javi Alonso so Varun, why don't we begin with talking about how he sets his team up to play in possession because that that's really the eye catching part of it isn't it yeah i mean <laughs> i think early in the season there were so many tweets where people would say you have to watch leverkusen they are the most exciting team in europe and i know that's thrown around a lot for a lot of teams but this is a tag that genuinely fits them they are really really good to watch and let's get into it because a lot of jabi alonso tactics follow this theme of 
a core basic principle but variations and um flexible options built on top of those so this is like the theme in both in and out of possession and match to match game state to game state you can see these variations these tweaks that keep coming but then there are some core principles which remain constant so i'll try to divide it that way in possession i mean we know it's a 3421 and i'd like to talk about all the three phases now i think where we have to start from is the midfield there was this recent interview with granit xhaka when he was being asked the differences between arteta and alonso and one thing he said very clearly is alonso has two sixes and they everything revolve revolves around them they are key they are the center they are fixed everything else is a bit more flexible and that kind of stayed with, with me and whenever i see leverkusen i kind of get it the two sixes are very close to each other they are often horizontal along the same line yes there are some movements when one of them goes vertical either to join the attack or to drop in build up but largely speaking if you see any game their average possession uh, positions they are very close to the center circle and both are very close to each other so it's the two sixes who are a bit more stable they give that platform around which everything rotates so i would say they are the most rigid component of the formation the second most rigid component is the back 3 they very clearly play with a back 3 and two wing backs um i say here they are a bit more flexible because of the tilting nature of the wing backs so when frimpong often plays on the right he is like a right winger i mean um if everyone's uh thinking of flying wing backs like marcos alonso or denzel dumfries i mean he's better than them but i'm just giving the type of movement if you're thinking of flying <laughs> wing backs yeah i mean no no confusion on the quality <laughs> no but, but i th- yeah. i think just quickly on that point it's also worth noting that like alonso is someone who maybe overlapped a lot but frimpong is just someone who starts really high like he basically yeah. Yeah, starts yeah. almost on the last line he's a right winger uh, yeah exactly so he he should be yeah. yeah like if if any club is trying to sign him you can't sign him as a right back or even a right wing back in most normal systems he's very yeah. much i mean a right winger as you say there are there are arguments that um leverkusen's formation is a 4231 and you can see it i mean if you plot out the average positions uh, for most games and for the season frimpong's like in right winger position and grimaldo is often in a left back position so it's almost a cross you know even though there are two wing backs one is definitely higher uh, a more outlet oriented wing back and the other is a bit more narrow closer to the midfield and the defense and who obviously moves in certain phases into the attack either into the half spaces or wide he is flexible but grimaldo has that key role he, he is like a really good technician he can be as deep as a left center back and as wide as a left winger himself or anywhere in midfield too so i think that is a flexible part in the defense line otherwise the back three largely they are central and they shift a bit to the right to compensate for frimpong but then in some matches when frimpong doesn't play the opposite can also happen where grimaldo is more aggressive and the right wing back when it's stanisic for example is not super um, a- aggressive so fairly rigid um, but lot more flexible compared to the pivot and the third component uh, which is the front three here is where i would call them most fluid um they are very fluid it's almost tough to call it a consistent two attacking midfielders behind a striker i mean that's what it is and notationally that's what you would say but they exchange positions a lot they often go really wide as two wingers sometimes they come really narrow as two attacking midfielders sometimes they invert the triangle and become like two strikers and one number 10 behind them so they have all these lot of rotations and i think that's where they are most fluid and that's why their final third dynamics are a lot of fun to watch so yeah i think in possession if you look at their build up structures they often build up in a 4-2 with grimaldo being a little deeper and they i mean there was a recent article on them being the best for line breaking passes at least 3 or 4 of their players were in the top 10 and it's noticeable when you see a game of leverkusen either they are breaking the lines with those very very quick short central passes 
or they are breaking lines by the switch after a bit of um, overload one thing they often do is they will uh, drop towards one area usually the right um, and then do a lot of short passes and then they'll get like half the opponent team in that side of the pitch and then there'll be one or two players usually a wing back and one of the wingers who will be on the opposite side and they'll switch to them and it's a 2v1 against the opponent full back and in general it's a 4v3 against the opponent back line so they do that a lot um i think it's a very very nice mix of patient build up lots of short passes they obviously rank the highest in the bundesliga for number of passes attempted and amongst the highest in the top 5 leagues itself so they pass a lot it's a lot of short passes but it never feels dull because there's always that moment of excitement there's always those really smart overloads smart moments and then the line breaking intent is very high they're constantly progressing or switching so that is like the real uh, fun part about them in possession and just to round off this part they rank second for number of dribbles in the league they rank second for number of cutbacks they rank third for number of through balls but they rank 18th for number of crosses so you would assume if it's a very wing back oriented system that there'll be a lot of crosses but levkisen are not really about the crosses when they come to the final third play they actually try to use the two widest players as people who are stretching the pitch and to cut back inside and what they do is they actually overload the center a lot there's a striker there two attacking midfielders and sometimes there's another midfielder like zaka or pelicius who also come and join so you have often four players at the center who are there to receive those cutbacks those short passes so they really like uh those short dribbles through the center those through balls that you know release a player through the center and they actually don't cross much at all you'll rarely see a levkusen goal that is just switch and then cut on the outside and then cross to the striker who's heading it in that rarely happens so yeah that's just the final detail on their final third dynamics and how they like to create yeah absolutely spot on and i think one point that i'll also add is uh, i think this is something that uh, first i believe abel mashara's pointed out which is through the faces what i really love about leverkusen is just the way they dictate the speed and tempo of play and they often do that through the distances between their players especially in in, in the central base of you know the 3-2 or the 4-2 depending on where grimaldo is they you know when they're building up they might be a little bit more spread out to you know help play through pressure and and go around uh, sort of up opponents chasing the ball but then in the final third they can all become really close so then there's quick one touch passing you know snapping the ball through uh, uh breaking lines and all that so that that's also a really interesting element to, to watch out for if when you're watching leverkusen because we talk a lot about shapes and everything but really a lot of it is also just distances between players and that's something they've really mastered and again they do have a lot of flexibility in that um in, in terms of how they want to play how quickly they want to play um but but that's something which i've really noticed uh, uh it, it, this season from them and that really helps them control games and really control the tempo of play in in, in whatever way they want to and again that varies on a lot of factors like the opponent and the game state and all but that that offers them a great deal of sort of flexibility in how they want to approach even without changing the formation of the structure or anything so that's a, another great uh, part of them but uh, one more thing to add uh, uh, to to what you said do you want to guess were on the top 5 passers uh, sorry the top 5 players in the bundesliga with the most passes completed mm, i'm thinking he's going to be leverkusen and bayern dominated and i can tell you there's uh, three players from those two teams yeah i mean so the top 6 has three each uh, oh, oh you uh, meant three of the players in the uh, top 5 yeah, are from yeah and then there's teams, two so. from other clubs but okay yeah i'm going to go with if you even get those three that's fair enough i'll i'm going to go with tapsoba okay kimminje That's right. Kim Min Jae is right. Uh, Zaka. That's right. Zaka is actually number one, and this is this is what really stood out to me. So the top two complete, uh, you know, top two passers in terms of volume in this Leverkusen side 
are not any of the center backs it's the two midfielders jaka is first in the bundesliga palacios is fifth um Ooh. and and i think that really sort of highlights the point you made about mm. the 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 double pivot be, being the real hub for everything they do in possession and of course we do have to caveat this a bit with the fact that you know like tapsoba and uh, kosunu have been away at the afcon but i first saw this stat before the afcon so the, the gap has only widened now but this this has always been the case um so and just to add to that and just pull out one last fun stat um so you know the focus of attacks um template right like focus on the left side focus yeah, on the yeah. center focus on the right uh, yeah, with yeah. 100% being the total what do you think is leverkusen split for focus of attacks left middle right so as, as i understand this is like attacking third entries right um essentially um yeah 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 in the okay. opponent half yes yeah of course of course yeah um okay in the okay, okay. i would say uh, i i imagine it's really close but just a, mm, i i i wanted to say a touch more on the wings but i'm not really sure i i'll say um 35 in the middle i i uh, 34 on the left and whatever's left 31 on the right okay yeah not bad at all i mean you got it intent wise the exact split is 33 34 33 wow okay <laughs> 34 middle 33 33 left and right i mean wow. you cannot even get more mathematically accurate uh, the way alonso wants to play and the way the two sixes are so eek it's what you said right there is that equal empathy to both sides this is so different from uh, left leaning attacks or right leaning attacks liverpool have a right leaning attack madrid and manchester united have had a left leaning attack for ages liverpool currently have a very left leaning attack so this is very different you know the uh, intention to have an equal attack from both sides and the center that gives a lot of danger like opponents can't just say you know okay, let's block this as the main threat there's no main threat here all of the front five is a threat both midfielders are a threat you know you have to be really organized across uh, horizontally and vertically to be able to stop leverkusen consistently and i think that itself is one massive power that uh, this team has and that opponents struggle to deal with yeah absolutely i think that circles back to what i was saying about grimaldo because Uh, I, I I don't know if you can find the numbers, but I imagine last season the left would have been way lower. So with him now, they have that you know the triple threat, um, and that's really I mean yeah like how how can you stop that? What do you stop? Um, so it's 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 fantastic, and yeah, I think that's that's yeah one final point to mention actually, uh, which ties into the thing I was referencing uh, with regard to distances earlier, is also the fact that Leverkusen have an incredibly good counter press. and again that's because of the short distances they maintain um in 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 the in the final third especially th- th- there's always so many players close around the ball and they're always mainly looking to pass short so it's as you say they do switch sometimes but that's in rarer cases and generally when they have overloads in the wings so generally even when they lose the ball it will be like a tackle or a short pass um you know going wrong or of course you know a, a attempted creative pass getting cleared or something like that but they'll always have so many people around the ball that they can just jump on it and that's why they have uh, last i checked they had the best uh, counter press in the bundesliga this season um and yeah i mean it's 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 quite clearly the, the most solid so in in every single respect um of possession play i, I would say leverkusen are about as good as as you know the squad can be actually i so we 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 started working on the sort of preparation of this episode before the bayern game and before that game the only even loose question mark i had was how their build up would cope against a really really high press um and and bayern tried to go almost player for player um by switching the formation which went really well um, but yeah i mean leverkusen absolutely sliced through them uh so yeah i think um tactically execution wise whatever way you look at it um their possession play is incredibly incredibly refined and yeah among among the most exciting uh to watch out there and among the most interesting as well so that that really sets the base for how good they've been 
but i think it's it's but perhaps what really convinces me and i imagine many other people of alonso's readiness to take on a, a big job already even though he's just had over a year in managing a first team is just how solid uh, he is tactically not just in possession but also out of possession and what i love about him is his adjustments between matches many teams you'll see that they have a, i don't think you can say leverkusen have a set you know a fixed structure out of possession like even manchester city you can say that yeah basically every game you will see them in a 4-4-2 or some variation of that uh, but with leverkusen it always changes from match to match opponent to opponent uh, and of course depending on what they want to do and their variation is not just in terms of shape uh, in terms of like structure you know 3-4-2-1 or 3-5-2 or whatever but also in terms of intent um whether they want to press high whether they want to be in a high block whether they want to be in a compact mid block whether they want to press out of mid block they can basically do everything and these are of course match to match variations but also often in game variations depending on game state or if you know he uh, he's uh, like they've noticed something tactically not being right for them so addressing a weakness but they're just so fantastic at making these adjustments making the right calls and of course executing them on the pitch and i i think we can't emphasize that enough because it's all well and good to have these ideas but you really need these players to execute them well and all of leverkusen's players are so so intelligent in in understanding what they need to do so in general what you see they do want to press high uh, in in most cases and in almost all matches i mean you know games like big games against like bayern can be exceptions but generally when they face teams they want to press them and you you'll generally see two uh, pressing structure variations from them uh, there's one is so they'll generally have a 3 4 uh, at the to so the you know this again assuming a high press like right uh, into the box against goal kicks so you'll generally see like a 3 4 type thing um, at the back so the back three and then the wing backs you know prepared to push up on the if if the ball comes to their side so they're basically alongside the double pivot but then the the real variation up top is whether it's like a 2-1 or a 1-2 so sometimes you'll see verts um uh, as in more of a central number 10 position marking the opposition defensive midfielder if they're playing with a lone six or other times you'll have both him and hoffman on a double six and then the stri- striker obviously chasing the ball initiating the press and then everyone makes the the, the exactly right angled runs to force the opposition into a, uh, generally they force them out to the wing and then really spring with the wing back joining in as well um but it's it's just really tough to play through that and the best part is uh, as i mentioned they they can really do anything with this so they can press high they can maybe drop deep and press out or they can just sit in a really compact block as they did against bayern and that 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 really was a, f- a fantastic piece of execution because you generally see top teams are amazing when they have to press because that's all they train for but then if if they come up against a really strong opposition who's dominating the ball and they have to defend a lot in a block they sometimes can struggle but leverkusen absolutely not they were in such a super compact block and again the shapes can vary so you might see a 5-3-2 a 5-2-2-1 something like that or or often you even get a 4-4-2 uh, with frimpong you know as the nominal right midfielder so again he's he's as we said he's the really really attacking player not the most solid defensively and of course he can also be a, a, a threat on the counter so that's why they'll they'll keep him up you know push him up by one line in a 442 and that that's a very obvi- I, i think there's a lot to be said about the 442 being arguably the best defensive shape in terms of the overall coverage it offers um and so that's that's again a fantastic option for them to have so there's a lot of variation here too but it's all very intelligent variation uh, and it's it's all very measured in terms of you know what they want to do and what the opponents are doing and also one final thing i'll add uh, is that their pressing approach is also quite variable so there'll be elements of player oriented pressing there'll be elements of zonal pressing and often what you get as a result of that is uh, what we call a hybrid press so with elements of both uh, and that's really tough to play through because Of, of you know both both in their own both have weaknesses so like a player oriented press you can sort of try and break it by having a lot of rotations a zonal press you can maybe overload a zone but when it's when it's hybrid it's you're getting the best of both worlds and leverkusen again excel at that with great 
especially in midfield, they have all these intelligent players like your Jakas and Wirtzes who are so good at the defensive side of things. So that's a very long ra- rant about their, their out-of-possession stuff. But I'm a big fan. I think Varun is too because he's got his hand up. Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, disagree with anything he said. I mean, all of it was spot on. And I, I, again, I'll just go back to the principles that they have and then the variations that they have. And as you said, pressing is one principle. And again, the stats indicated very clearly for gegenpressing intensity, they're number one in the Bundesliga. For gegenpressing efficiency, they're number one in the Bundesliga. So obviously that the pressing matters. But then yes, the variations come. And I just want to pick out two examples. Their last two matches, simpler, simplest examples. Against Bayern, as you said, very low possession. They had about 40% possession, Bayern at 60+. Plus. And in that specific game, now the threat with the Bayern um, attacking lineup is Kane and Musiala being like number 10s. You know, Kane is like, he's now in his withdrawn forward arc. Uh, I know we, we discussed that in the Tottenham episode as well. And why Kane is probably not a poacher anymore and you have to adjust to that. And we kind of theorize it, it works for Bayern because they have attacking wingers. But that dynamic means that often Bayern's source of creation has been Kane or Musiala dropping into number 10 areas and then playing in the wingers, right? And what Leverkusen did is they had two very deep number sixes uh, and a very pushed up back three. So that central space between the defense and midline was non-existent. Jonathan Tav was the center back. Uh, Granit Zaka and Robert Andrich with the number sixes, they were like very tight in a triangle, not letting Kane and Musiala drift there at all. To the point where Jonathan Tav was leaving space behind him. So it was like a very twisted structure where Tav was almost like a defensive midfielder. But Piero Hincapi and Tapsaba, the other two centre-backs, they were a little withdrawn to look out for the winger threat behind. Now, this would be absolutely suicidal if you have a line-leading centre-forward, if you have someone who can run in that gap, you know, someone who can offer the vertical run. Bayern didn't have that person. Uh, Bayern's bigger threat were the wingers and the two number 10s who, if they get a bit of space and they start spraying their uh, passes, then uh, it becomes a problem. And Leverkusen blocked that out. And the work rate that the front three had to do, the extra work rate that they had to pick up because the two sixes weren't supporting them, which they usually do in other matches. Zaka or Andrik would at least go a little, you know, forward to help the press. But here they were tasked to just hold their position and uh, look at Bayern's dangerous attackers. As a result, the front three had to press a lot. And after the game, Jabi Alonso said, Nathan Teller, Florian Wirtz and Amin Adli really did a great job. And it was two attacking midfielders, Wirtz and Teller behind Adli. And almost polar opposite, their next game is again Heidenheim. Uh, It was a tough game for Leverkusen. Um, Small opponent, weaker opponent, but still a tough game because they were very deep in a block. They were very disciplined. Leverkusen 1-2-1. And here, if you see their out-of-possession approach, firstly, they played Amin Adli and Patrick Schick as a front two. Both the strikers were pushing the defense line vertically, like they were on the shoulders of the defense line to give that vertical space so that the Evacution players can operate in that uh, number 10 area, the half spaces, the area between the defense and midline. So immediately there's a difference. Two strikers are pushing the defense line. Florian Wirtz is the number 10 this time, who's roaming in that space. Andrich and Zaka are pushing a lot more aggressively. Now they're not worried about that defense, uh, the space between the defense line and the midline. They were almost like along with Wirtz as two players next to him and they were engaging in a super high press so that they could repeatedly counter press and get in those dangerous areas and the wing backs were also high so their average um, formation was almost like a 316 or almost like a 217 at times and they ha- they had that intense pressure they didn't care too much about the gaps between the lines because they know there's uh, no crazy opponent number 10 they just had a bit of awareness on the threat in behind because uh, Heidenheim had a very good striker, again, um, a, a target man kind of striker. So a little bit of awareness of the in-behind threat. And other than that, very high pressure, 
straight in their faces and try to keep uh, commit a lot of numbers in attack and they got the two goals required in 1-2-1 so i mean two drastic examples in this case they had 62% possession they had all the ball they were the ones who had to go for the win they were applying all the pressing and counter pressing and they got the job done and these are just like two examples of how no matter who the opponent is no matter what the game state is whether they're losing their empathy for when uh, the match is at a balance when they're losing when they're winning that is also really good they push the aggression up or calm things down very quickly as well so no no matter who the opponent no matter what the game state the ability of this team to just find solutions and chop and change accordingly and for jabulonzo to use so many players i mean between these two games itself he got in shake he got in frimpong whom he dropped for the bayern game your your most attacking player but you drop him to get a bit of defensive stability in the back three also stanisic came in for tapsaba so he keeps getting in those players who will be required and all of this is tactical so just using a full squad and every game by game getting the best out of the player traits and getting such performances and remaining unbeaten this is management according to me this is this top class football management yeah absolutely and i think it's also worth mentioning the the point you raised about the heidenheim game as you said that showed great variation in the defensive approach and also in the offensive approach right because they had that front two and he spoke about it after the game as well it was very much a clear intention of his to use that front two as as two high very split uh, forwards to pin the the opposition back line and create space in 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 between the lines for florian wirtz to operate in and we'll get on to him but he's a fantastic fantastic number 10 Uh, with great sort of spatial understanding and that worked a treat and if you watch the second goal it's i mean <laughs> i bet alonso would have dreamt about it at night because it's wits receiving between the lines on the half turn and slipping a through ball to one of the forwards amin adli who scored so yeah i mean tactically uh, just alonso's understanding of the game and understanding of you know how matches will play out so understanding of how his team will play and how that will sort of uh, pan out Uh, and with uh, with respect to the opposition's tactics and their approach is is really fantastic and that that's that's why he he gets his tactics basically spot on for almost every game and that's why he delivers in these big games like against bayern and so that's why you know everyone thinks that he's going to do a fantastic job if he moves on to a club which is basically competing on for every title every season so yeah i think that uh, that should round us off for the tactical side of things just a brief mention now about um their the statistics and some of their numbers i mean we have you know fed in uh, their stats in 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 almost uh, all, all all the bits we spoke about so let's not go too in depth but yeah as we said they very possession dominant so i believe they have the highest uh, number of passes in the bundesliga this season so that really um highlights that as well and of course warren spoke about the dribbling stats as well and then uh, out of possession as Warren said best kick and pressing best counter pressing basically in the league best pressing as well they have the most high turnovers in the bundesliga and the most short ending high turnovers as well so they they're winning the ball up high up the pitch and they're making good use of it um and then of course the big question everyone has is underlying numbers uh, with xg and expected goals against and in this respect leverkusen are slightly lower than uh, bayern their chief title challengers in both So their xG is forty five point seven. They've scored fifty seven goals. Their xGA is nineteen point four. They've conceded fifteen. Uh, Bayern. Uh, so that their xGD then is twenty six point three. Bayern's is thirty nine point one. When you look at that, you think, oh god, uh, Bayern might you know the eight eight points, but Bayern might still jump over them. But really, one thing that these the, the, the xG and especially xGD fails to contextualize is the effects of game state. because leverkusen as we have seen throughout the season are very comfort you know the, the, their basically tactical approaches are tailor made pre match for how the match is going to be so they will generally start on the front foot they will generally score the opening goals and then they will generally basically look to manage the game see things out uh, and leave with all three points whereas bayern have rarely got it spot on not just tactics but also execution wise they've been super super sloppy i mean that's all separate episode of course 
Um, but basically, that means they found themselves chasing games a lot. And I think, the, uh, you know, after they lost to Bochum uh, this weekend, uh, Thomas Tuchel mentioned something about the XG, which was like, it was like 3.6 for Bayern and 1.2 for Bochum or something, and they lost 3-2. And he was like, if we played that game 10 times, we would win 9 times or something, whatever. But I think that that's a really silly comment from, I mean, you'd expect someone involved at that level of management to know better. But the thing is, which he Tuchel has been missed. making a lot of silly comments this year. Yeah, <laughs> he has, and I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do hope this wasn't a serious comment. I just hope he was, I don't know, uh, just saying it for the sake of it, or whatever. But because if you played that game ten times, and then if Bochum went to one up, and then you scored for two two, then Bochum no longer sit back and do nothing, right? Obviously, they will attack more. You'll get less chances. They'll get more chances. The XG numbers will look very different, and you can basically apply that principle. Um, for <laughs> the whole of the season, um, and 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 then you'll see uh, the fact that yes, there's a big discrepancy between Bayern and Leverkusen's XG, but in reality, the 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 level of performance isn't is it quite that big at all? And in fact, I don't think it would be crazy to say that Leverkusen um, have performed clearly better than Bayern throughout the season. And a final point to illustrate that is that if if so, based on a points table just on the first half of matches this season, Bayern would be third. They would be below Stuttgart as well. So, that's how bad they've started their games. Um, and that really explains this uh, you know, XGD difference. But I don't think... Because often we say you know stuff about regressing to the mean and all that. This is not um, saying that... you know, Lever- I mean, Leverkusen's performance, maybe their goal scoring might be a little bit unsustainable... Um, Though they do have some fantastic finishers in their side, but their defensive record is very solid. Um, and so as a result, they're not going to fall off. And Bayern really haven't shown anything um, to, to suggest that they will improve a lot. And even if they do, I don't think they're going to catch Leverkusen because I mean, they're unbeaten this season. And quick start for you, Warren. Uh, Leverkusen have led uh, in Bundesliga matches on 18 occasions this season so far. Uh, what do you think have uh, has been the result of those games? So they they've basically led eighteen times in matches, uh, or rather they've led at some point in eighteen matches. Uh, how many do you think they've won? How many do you think they've drawn? How many do you think they've lost? I mean, they haven't lost, obviously. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> silly question. Yeah, but yeah, wins and draws is basically the one. I I think most of it's going to be wins. I'm going to go seventeen one. Well, you, you you went for a bold call, but it should have been even bolder because it's eighteen. 18-0. Yep, uh, it's eighteen. I, I, I thought it could be eighteen zero. I was just giving one random game a chance, but yeah, <laughs> I'm but not yeah, surprised at all. As you said, their game management is just elite. I mean, and that's the reason why Jabi Alonso feels like like a seasoned veteran. He feels like a guy who's managed through multiple Champions League teams and knows exactly how to pace a game, knows exactly how to eke out a win, knows when to press, when to defend. He just feels like an old soul already. He feels like he's in a Carlo Ancelotti era or something like that. And that that is reflective in all the stats and the gameplay. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that, that, that really sums it up. So that is, I think, one part of it. And another point which I wanted to address, which I, I didn't really touch on in the intro uh, intentionally, is a bit of Leverkusen's history because I, I don't know if you remember, but we, we recorded um, ahead of the season a Bundesliga preview episode where we obviously spoke about Bayern, Dortmund, and then we thought that Leipzig would probably be Bayern's main challenges because they had a good window as well on paper. And then I, w- I, I did some stuff and I was like doing the research on Leverkusen and I was like, oh, they're so good. They're amazing. They've done some brilliant stuff. And so we were all hyping them up. But then when it came to predictions, none of us really wanted to say they'd be in a title race. And no one else, like, I don't think any German football experts said that either. Just because of the history of the club um, and, and the sort of the, 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 the reputation they have built as serial chokers. And in fact, one of their nicknames is Neverkusen, which I think they got in, what, 2002, was it? When they basically, they did the, the, the they won the treble, but of being runners up. So Champions yeah, I mean, League runners-up. Yeah, it's almost like if someone predicts Spurs are going to have a title. Yeah, exactly. Or something. I mean, you don't expect, even if they get a really nice manager like Ange Postecoglou, uh, even if they and, get and really thing, good thing, transfers. The thing about Leverkusen is, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's a next level of Spurs as well so far. Because like with Spurs, you know, 
I mean, like, if you look at the last 10 years, I don't think at any point you could have said, like, they were really exciting and people were like, oh, what are they doing? And then they disappointed people. It was like, yeah, they're not quite there, right? Then with Leverkusen, it's almost a cycle of every two, three years. They do something really cool, get a bunch of good players, maybe even start the season really well. I remember the season before Sevane was sacked, they were very close to Bayern until October. Then they played and lost like 4 or 5 nil, and then they were gone. Um, and then they finished way behind. And that's basically the reputation they have, is, is that they, you know, they'll build excitement in the off-season and maybe at the start of the season. They'll never sustain it. And even if they sustain it, even if they get to the end, they will find a way to choke. But, I mean, obviously they haven't done anything yet this season. They haven't won anything. So, I hope we're not speaking too soon. But on the evidence of what we've seen so far, on the evidence of the matches they've won, whether it's the, the 3-2 against Stuttgart in the DFB Pokal with, you know, a, what was it, a 90th minute or, yeah, 90, 90th minute winner, whether it was the, the draw early on in the season against Bayern, uh, where they conceded in like the 86th minute or something. And at that point, everyone was like, oh yeah, that's classic Leverkusen. But it, it wasn't. They, they equalized just thereafter and they came away with something. And so throughout the season, we've seen these results and matches which go to show that, you know, Alonso has really changed. And the players, of course, as well, have really changed just the mentality around the club. Um, and, and you know, they, they might be shedding their sort of Neverkusen tank finally this season. So, I mean, obviously, as I said, I don't, don't want to speak too soon. Um, but it, I mean, it would take quite something for them to not win anything um, at all. I mean, it, it would be a historic piece of choking even by Leverkusen standards but yeah I thought that was worth uh, mentioning as well now let's get on to some of our players um, and we don't have a lot of time so let's fi- go quick fire on them uh, well, let's begin with Florian Wirtz so there's a whole Bruno Fernandes debate going on on United Twitter right now again and the, again <laughs> it's one of those things right everyone's like we need to mourn from Bruno and honestly I think he's he's a really good player but every time people ask me you know if you had to replace him I'm like the only player no. I would consider replacing Bruno Fernandes with is Florian Wetz I don't think it'll happen but I'm just saying thematically he represents like an upgrade on someone like Bruno Fernandes, which which is which in itself is very tough. There are very few players you can say who can upgrade Bruno, on Bruno Fernandes, but the few gaps that even Fernandes has, right, in terms of like carrying ability, in terms of uh, defensive awareness, Wurtz has that as well. And then he has all the other things that Bruno does in terms of the playmaking power, the goal scoring power, the in general the output power. Um, and yeah, I mean he's just a brilliant player. And he's been playing striker on the left wing, attacking midfielder number 10, even like a left-sided 8 at times. He can do any of those roles. If he moves to a bigger club, City, Barca, Arsenal, United, Madrid, I can see him move anywhere and play one of these roles and be elite or world-class. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely the next big thing in football. Yeah, and I actually really like the Fernandes uh, comparison because... When you mentioned it, I thought, yeah, he's basically Bruno Fernandes, but with the ability to maybe control a bit more. And as you said, the, the better dribbling and defensive awareness as well. But yeah, the thing with Fernandes sometimes is that he's a bit too 0 to 100. But with Wirtz, you can tell him what you want from him and you will get exactly that. So he can control things a bit better, slow things down, or of course, play those constant, creative, incisive passes. He can just do, he can do basically everything you want from a number 10. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, p- people cry a lot about, oh, number 10 is dead. Just watch Florian Wirtz. He's, number 10 is clearly not dead. Um, let's go on now to uh, Victor Boniface. To be honest, um, I thought when he was injured, I was concerned. Because he was, like, first half of the season, he was sensational. It was 10 goals, 7 assists in just, like, 15 starts. So... Yeah, basically involved in more than a goal per game on average. And he just did everything uh, up front. So he's, he can be your line-leading striker. He can be you know presence on the last line. Uh, attack crosses in the box. Brilliant box threat. Great movement uh, to get on the end of stuff. But then he, he can also drop deep so well. He can link up with uh, the attacking midfielders. He can rotate with them, interchange, play with his back to goal, receive securely, turn defenders, dribble. I mean, he can also do almost everything. 
And so, I, to be honest, I was concerned when he was out, but they've coped surprisingly well without him. I mean, we, we maybe discuss it a bit more later. But yeah, I mean, I th- I, even despite that, I don't think we should take anything away from what Boniface has done um, in just his you know his first season in Germany and just over a year after he left uh, Belgium. So he he was uh, in in glimped in Norway till August twenty twenty two, and yeah, decent amount of excitement about him, but like nothing crazy. Like no one thought he would be in like you he, he would tear the Bundesliga up. Went to Belgium to Union Saint Gilles, tore the Pro League up in a season. And now he came to uh, Leverkusen and absolutely, I mean, again, no one thought he'd do this well. And he absolutely smashed it up. So, yeah, a fantastic, very well-rounded player as well. Uh, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on him, Baron. Otherwise, uh, let's go on to uh, Jeremy Frimpong. Okay. Uh, We spoke a lot about Frimpong, so I won't repeat stuff. I remember doing a scouting report on him to look for right-backs. And for United, obviously. And I realized he's not a right-back, as you said. Uh, I do think he's a very good presser. He's very good pressing. So he should ideally be the guy who's pressing forward. I just don't think you can have him in a defensive block. Um, You you have to avoid it as much as you can. He can't be the deepest right-sided player in a defensive block. If you're doing a 4-4-2, as you said... I don't think he should be in the right-back zone, which is why Alonso also usually puts him in the right-midfield zone or makes it a back five with him uh, at right-wing-back so that there's enough protection. So, anywhere he goes, any team he goes to, I think that has to be... uh, Teams have to be cognizant of that. Um, Attack, yes, unleash him, let him go forward. In defense, I don't think he should be your... uh, the in the deepest line in the block uh, that would be suicidal only thing i want to add on frimpong otherwise we have covered how excellent he is in attack let's next go to alando grimaldo again you covered a bit of him anything we missed no i think yeah that's largely done as i said to me the most important player addition to the squad this season and again he's again a guy who can basically do it all almost um from dropping deep to build up and then of course crossing in the final third his ball striking is amazing by the way whether it's whip crosses or long shots, fake kicks. Um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic player. Very intelligent. And again, almost an all-phase player on that left side. So, yeah, not not, not much to add, but a brilliant, brilliant signing. Um, and uh, finally, this was uh, uh, very, very smart of me. So now we've basically covered like half of the side, uh, well, half the attack already. So then I also said Palacios and Xhaka, which is the double first choice double pivot. I think we've spoken enough about them. Um, and then I said all the centre-backs. So the whole team, basically. Um, but but on the centre-backs, I do want to point out, uh, specifically, Jonathan Ta, because most of the attention goes to the white centre-backs, uh, both like when you're watching, obviously, they're more prominent uh, on and off the ball. And then there are also younger players, Orion Kosunu and uh, uh, Edmond Tapsoba. So there's a lot of hype around them. And but Ta is... I don't think anyone would have envisioned him being like a key figure in a title-winning or title-chasing team. He's, what, all close to 30 years old now, almost. And, not, again, not the not the most aesthetically pleasing to watch. He's, he's quite well-built, quite tall, and, you know, uh, he's got a really broad physique. But he's not at all quick. Um, he can get turned. And so, before Alonso came in, in a, in a back four, he was he could be a bit of a weak link sometimes, with, with regard to pace especially. But in this central centre-back role, he's done so, so well, marshalling the defensive lines, winning their duels against strikers and just keeping things sticking in possession. So, yeah, I just want to give a shout-out to him because I feel he's been really underrated, but he's done amazing. All right, any more players? Uh, I mean, obviously, as I said, the, the whole team, the whole squad, but anyone yeah. you want to specifically talk about? Or nah, shall let's just on? go to our last topic. Yes, let's let's do it. Um, our last topic then, of course, the big question, where should Alonso go next and when? We obviously talked about Liverpool uh, in, in, in in that episode we did a couple of weeks ago in, in pretty good detail, I thought. But yeah, Varun, any other thoughts before I bring in my wildcard shout? Um, no, go ahead. Uh, let me hear your wildcard shout and then I'll debate it. Okay, so from Alonso's point of view, if I were to have Alonso, what I, in an ideal world, what I would have done is probably wait a season or even two seasons more at Leverkusen and just wait for Carlo Ancelotti to leave Real Madrid and take that job. Because I feel that's a 
more secure in a sense i mean we talked about the concerns with liverpool in that episode um so i feel that's a more secure job from alonso's point of view and obviously his style of play is also something that's more invaluable to i mean his flexibility rather is something that's more important to real madrid than it may be to liverpool and i'm not saying it won't work at liverpool it will almost certainly work but i'm just saying that madrid will appreciate it more and need it more so if you think from from both parties point of view him going to real madrid would have made more sense and of course it could still happen but yeah i think if and from liverpool's point of view they 150% should approach him i think it might be too good an offer to turn down for alonso and he's definitely ready for it so it could be that he spends you know 3 4 years at liverpool and then uh, goes to madrid when the when the opening comes but yeah in in an ideal world for him i i i think he would have been best off maybe going straight to madrid what do you think um i don't think it's a bad idea i still feel liverpool is a better fit um he loves liverpool a bit more from what i can see and from what i've seen of his interviews i don't think he should wait a year or two i don't know i already think he's he's ready oh yeah he's, he's, he's ready. absolutely ready yeah, yeah. No, no, so i i don't see no, i mean yeah like the, the the wait was in the sense of waiting for ancelotti waiting for carlo too yeah, yeah yeah um i also think madrid's approach to team building and tactics is very relationist like two relationist they are so left heavy they don't have a proper striker they really believe in building great teams with great personalities great well-rounded players and then figuring it out on the pitch and i think ancelotti meshes well with that um i do think there is a risk involved uh, with jabi alonso like the way he wants to play that equal split that we are seeing that you know both sides uh, you know uh, proper attacking and all those things i don't i mean there was this whole theory that madrid actually struggle when they pivot to a positionist kind of manager and the few times they have tried that in the recent past it didn't work well and the ones who succeeded were zidane and ancelotti who did not have those constraints so i just fear if they really go for a very specific positionist kind of manager or at least someone who's a bit more defined in his principles in build up progression and creation it might not necessarily be better um i do think liverpool as a squad are a little better suited in that sense um i also think we have to <laughs> there is another wild card option i mean there there is a wilder option than these don't say barcelona no uh, i made this tweet uh, when uh, i think yeah i think the leverkusen bayern game and i was like my first thought uh, after this game is oh you obviously going to say manchester united Uh, no 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 uh, no i'm not i i don't even dream of that it's not happening <laughs> never come to united but i said that my first take away from this game is that liverpool should do anything to get alonso immediately oh yeah my, yeah. my second take away is i think bayern will beat them to it oh. um, and since then yeah. tuchel's been on a bad run and there have been recent links uh, that bayern board wants alonso uh, i won't be i won't be surprised and to be very honest with you their squad I mean, is decent perfect too. for bayern yeah <laughs> the squad is uh-huh. really good i mean they they have yeah, all they have the elements yeah. yeah i mean kane in that striker role supported Ooh. by four five around musiala in, in the wards role in the wards role so yeah, it, the, it's pretty good kimmich in midfield yeah, yeah. I, see, yeah. I, i never thought of that but yeah i i, I really hope it doesn't happen But if it does happen, it'd be absolutely perfect. I think, yeah, that's like an instant fix. But finally, I think on the point you made about Real Madrid, I totally agree with you on, in the sense that you know they're gonna have a tough time again replacing Carlo as they did Zidane. But I do think um, Alonso is is one of their best bets just because he is flexible enough um, to sort of adapt to purchase. So as you say, at 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 Leverkusen, he's he's had the equal attack, so to speak. I don't think that's necessarily a principle of his, I mean again I'm totally guessing here but I don't think that's necessarily a principle of his I think that's just him doing what he can to get the best out of the resources he has and he realizes that for Leverkusen it's it's best because he doesn't have the Bellingham level of quality or the Vinicius level of quality in the squad it's best to have a multidimensional threat but if he gets his hands on something like that I think he he can make something fantastic work but yeah who knows that's a theory and yeah 
I mean, as you say, Liverpool should throw the kitchen sink and whatever else they can get their hands on to sign Alonso in the summer. So, I, I mean, that's definitely likelier. And, I mean, yeah, he's 100% ready for whatever job I'd say almost right now. So, from his point of view, um, I think, yeah, a- a- anything should go. But, uh, yeah, I think that's that's all we've got for today. Um, so, unless uh, we can think of any last-minute additions, that is your episode. So, thank you very much, Varun, for joining me. Uh, and Always thanks to pleasure. Alex for uh, whatever research not he being there. Uh, but yeah, thanks to Alex for not bringing this uh, along the excitement down. Um, but yeah, of course we'll be back next week. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shalat Neil. Uh, Varun is at the Devil CNA. Alex is at Eurexpert underscore. And if you go to the at Get Football EO account, you will find in the bio the links to all our country and league specific accounts where we cover football around Europe and the world. With all the latest news, analysis, videos, all sorts of stuff to keep you plugged in to what's going on all over the place. You can find links to all of that in the notes or description of this episode, wherever you're listening. Uh, and if you if your app allows it, please do rate the podcast uh, and give us a good review because I, th- I think we did well there. Um, and yeah, feel free to, of course, share it on your social media as well. But thanks for listening. A big thanks to you, Varun. And we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.